John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back, saying, The neighbours and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son? Who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees now, we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you this already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for you, as for this man, we do not know where he has come from. The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man, were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, 
and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I, I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Thanks, Andrew, for reading that this morning for us. So, and thanks for having me in your home today. I just feel a real joy that I can come into your living room and share the word of the Lord with you this morning. And so hopefully by now you'll have picked up that we have made this kind of unexpected leap into the book of John and how we've really been unpacking that when Jesus came onto the scene, he was doing a new thing in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas at that time. He was pushing back against a lot of the old traditions and systems that for too long had become a stumbling block to the flow of God's grace. And we've also been linking that up with Ezekiel 47 and how the grace that Jesus demonstrates through his ministry was the flow of the river of God's grace. Jesus was offering the very presence of God through himself and it was life-giving and everyone was getting the chance to be invited into that. So just to place today's passage in some kind of context, this miracle takes up one whole chapter as you've just heard in the book of John. Jesus has just finished participating in the Feast of the Tabernacles, declaring himself as the I Am in John 9. And as a result of doing that, he ruffles some religious feathers and then faces immediate danger. <laughs> so he's now leaving the temple, I imagine, in quite a hurried fashion. And he stumbles upon the blind man who was there in today's passage begging. Now, the blind man was there because he, he likely saw it as an excellent opportunity to make a bit of money. Because there would have been a big crowd who would have been leaving the temple after the feast but as we've actually just heard, he ends up receiving far more than just a token gesture of money when he encounters Jesus. So a quick recap of that whole chapter. Jesus sees the blind man. The disciples then want to know whose sin is responsible for his blindness. Jesus heals him. The neighborhood goes into a frenzy and they then bring the blind man to the Pharisees to find out what has happened. They intensely question him. And then his parents are brought before the Pharisees and questioned as well. And then they throw the man out of the temple completely. But Jesus finds him again at the end. And one of the first and most significant points that I want to bring out this morning, and that I feel the Holy Spirit wants to drop into people's hearts today, is that Jesus saw. He didn't for one second view this blind man as an inconvenience. For Jesus, love begins with that intentional pause and that intentional look at someone. And Jesus actually won't categorize the sin of this um, blindness for the disciples, but instead he sees it as an opportunity to show the initiative in giving love to this guy. The blind man didn't see the Savior at this point, but the Savior saw him. Jesus reminds the disciples that there's a person actually involved in this and that theology at this particular point in time was not his priority at all. 
I love the message version of verse four of chapter nine when he says to the disciples that the cause of the blindness isn't the focus for Jesus in this moment. He says, we need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here working while the sun shines. Basically, what he's saying is, guys, we've got a kingdom to proclaim here. Let's get on with doing that and keep it our goal. Jesus, in that moment, saw what the man needed, and that was his focus. And isn't this truthful in in this day and age that really that's what everybody wants? The good news for you this morning is that Jesus sees you. And where he saw the deepest need of this blind man, he also sees the deepest need of your heart today as well. And I suppose that one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves off the back of this is, who or or what is Jesus prompting us to see in this season? We have this incredible opportunity in front of us to use this time to really spiritually discern and see how we can bring the love of Jesus deeper into our communities. Jesus has this heart yearn, I believe, to ignite our imaginations as to how we can do that best. And his intention for the church is to transform the community around us. I think you might have heard me say that before. And I imagine as Jesus bent down beside this guy to make this paste to rub on his eyes, the sound of spitting might have been an all too familiar sound for this guy, but perhaps for the wrong reasons. But imagine his surprise when actually the spitting wasn't aimed at him at all. And then he gets to feel this gentle touch of the ultimate healer and the sensation of mud being spread on his eyes on the most broken part of him. It all must have been quite unnerving. And then Jesus, of course, instructs him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And this is this kind of thing, you know me by now, this really gets me going where I get to unpack what the pool of Siloam meant. It was really interesting that he sent Jesus there. This was a man-made pool inside the walls of Jerusalem. It was the only permanent water source for the people inside the city. It actually came from a spring that was um, outside the walls of Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah, back in his time, ordered that a man-made tunnel be carved through the rock to bring this source of fresh water into the city. And in his wisdom, Hezekiah actually instructed that the source of the water outside the city walls be covered over and be protected because Jerusalem was very vulnerable to siege and attack. And he wanted the source of the fresh water protected to ensure that there was a flow of life-given water into the city. This pool ensured life in really difficult times. And it was also likely that the water from the Pool of Siloam was used in the Feast of the Tabernacles that Jesus had just attended. It was water from this pool, this Messiah pool, as it was also known, that Jesus would actually have been drawn parallels with when he spoke of the life-given water flowing out from our innermost beings. The pool speaks of the life-given force of the presence of God. And it was a place of cleansing and provision and spiritual blessing The healing was going to begin here in God's figurative presence. Such a good metaphor for us actually in these days, isn't it? As we wade into the river of God's presence, there's so much more than physical healing available for us in this season. 
And it would seem to us that this invitation to be in the river is still open, and that's something that we perhaps need to keep pressing into. Now, the blind man, he was had this nothing else really to rely on at this point. So he realizes that taking a gamble and following Jesus' instructions were probably worth the risk. And the beautiful but really painful thing was that the healing that Jesus was offering, it wasn't just exclusive to him, but it was actually intended to overflow into the community around him and bring about a spiritual awakening. Jesus saw, and in fact was all that they needed, But instead, what was in place through all of their rules and all of their systems bred this exclusivity, and it kept everyone separate and in their place. This intense level of systematic and spiritual control led to them all completely missing the miracle in that moment. And the grace that was behind the miraculous, it was going to flow whether everyone was ready for it or not. (laughs) And the pitiful thing was they just weren't ready. But Jesus shows up and they've entirely missed him. The purity of the love that Jesus was offering was causing everything that they knew to unravel and they just couldn't cope with that necessary coming undone that needed to happen to fully grasp the grace that Jesus was offering in that moment. So Jesus saw and he offered clarity of sight And he came inviting everyone into God's river of life. Are you feeling that pull at the moment? He's offering you a chance to see like we have never seen before. I know I am. So we have this choice to make in these days. Do we lean in to the invitation or do we push back and resist against it? I hope to show you through the blind man what Jesus offers you today. Now, the beautiful poetic irony in the whole thing is that the only person to truly see Jesus was the most unlikely person to do that, and it was the blind man. In this act of pure faith, he makes his way to the pool of Siloam. And as I read John 9, I couldn't help but kind of speculate as the man washed his eyes. Now, these are just my own musings, so um, it's not anywhere in the Bible, so it's not concrete. But I imagine that the first thing the man saw was his own reflection in the water, the first thing that he saw was himself. Having not ever seen himself before, Jesus grants him the grace to quite literally see himself with new eyes. (laughs) Jesus had given him this revelation. He had the ability to physically see first. But then as the story unfolds, as we've just heard through Andrew, that he begins to see things on a whole new spiritual level as well. And as we see his progress through the story, he begins, first of all, by categorizing Jesus as a man. Then, as he's brought before the Pharisees and he's recounting what has happened, he calls Jesus a prophet. They didn't like it because a prophet was actually a higher station than a Pharisee, and they would have been very threatened by that. Then he acknowledges Jesus as a man from God. And finally, at that close of the chapter, at that point of revelation, He says that Jesus is the son of man. He had gone on a journey where his eyes were spiritually opened. His healing began, first of all, with listening to the voice of Jesus, then by obeying his instruction, and finally by stepping into his presence. 
He took the invitation to step into the river of God when he was face to face with Jesus again at the end of the chapter. And it's now with the full ability to see, he gets this revelation that in Jesus, in fact, in Jesus, here was the answer to the heart cry of the whole nation. Now contrast this guy with the disciples. The disciples treated the man as a case study by questioning the cause of his blindness. And and let's not forget that he wasn't actually deaf at this point, so he probably heard the conversation that was going on between Jesus and the disciples. However, Jesus again sees it as an opportunity to connect with the spiritual potential and possibilities rather than judge like the disciples did. Their thought process in this moment was to always find some kind of cause. And if there wasn't a cause, then why was this actually happening? They sought to file God away so that they could just compact their understanding of him and keep it all neat and tidy within their own boundaries. Paul Miller says of this episode that analyzing provides the disciples with a safe and tidy world that keeps everything in its place. Jesus lowers himself in order to care while the disciples elevate themselves in order to judge. So where the disciples see sin, Jesus sees the potential for God to work. Where the disciples see tragedy, Jesus sees an incomplete story with the best yet to come. And Jesus in his grace in verse three reminds them that they are, in his words, asking the wrong question. He says, there's no cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. He's so tender with them. And he demonstrates that the blind man's darkness is actually an invitation to God's light. He reminds them as well that in suffering, there's always something much bigger than our circumstances going on. Jesus was challenging the disciples to get outside of their hindered and limited thinking. And I love, I have to tell you, that the goodness of God is not restricted by our prejudices. Rather, it often works outside the parameters that we put around it. It, In fact, it usually transcends all of them. And the challenge for us as a church in this season is to keep our hearts soft enough to be able to recognize what he's doing. Like the disciples, sometimes for us, the old way of seeing and understanding the present quite often has little to do with the spiritual reality that we find ourselves in. Ruth Haley Barton suggests that the disciples needed to be asking themselves this question, and so do we. What is God doing in this moment, and how can I get on board with it? It's a pretty big question that we're not going to get the answers to all in this moment, but perhaps it's one that God is urging you to ponder over the next while. Now, the next group of people whose reactions we want to explore are the neighbors. If we picture the scene from verse 8 on, the town was buzzing. The man had just been such an integral part of their everyday life that his blindness was just their normal. They could very well have had a visual immunity, if such a thing exists, to his presence. He was just part of the furniture. For the most part, the people in the community only really understood God through the teaching and the structures that the educated Pharisees had presented to them. And this is what posed the biggest problem. The difficult part of their reaction to this miracle is that they lived for so long 
with the reality of this blind man that they actually became spiritually blind to the miraculous when it was presented in their everyday. They were stuck in the familiarity of what his life looked like, which prevented them from accepting the possibilities of what it could now become. They couldn't shake off what they knew to let the new thing that Jesus was doing in. And they chose, they made that choice not to recognize the new reality of this man's life. They weren't open by any means to seeing the new thing that Jesus had just done. Being blind for this man was no longer his truth, but because they missed the miracle, being blind actually became their own spiritual truth. And I know, and having spoken to so many people, that for myself and others, we do not want that to be our story in these days. If our reality prevents us from seeing the miracle in our everyday, then perhaps our reality is something we need to adapt now, all of the responses so far contrast staggeringly with that of the religious leaders. When something like this happens, to be fair, I get why the neighbors brought the man to the religious leaders. They are the ones that we can usually trust with a situation like this to steward and manage the whole thing responsibly. The Pharisees had that job in their mind in this pain, keeping this painstaking observance of upholding the Jewish laws. And they felt like they demonstrated their commitment to the Lord in doing that. This meant that their interpretation of the law was final. Their, and their pride really prevented them from ever being wrong about that. Which unfortunately led to such tightly held ideas about themselves and about everyone else and their periphery that there was no room for recognition of the supernatural when it came. These religious rules had to be observed in their minds so that they could retain control. It was their goal to protect the Mosaic law, which led to holding on to God's favor. That's what they believed. And that, in turn, ushered in the coming of the Messiah, except he was already there and they entirely missed him because of their structures. Their interpretation of the law excavated very little of their own hearts, and that led to, left very little room for them to see the spiritual impulse of Jesus. In their view, through this miracle, Jesus broke three of the rabbinical laws. So the first one was that healing was only to happen on a Sabbath if it was a life and death situation. And in this instance, it really wasn't. So Jesus, in their mind, broke a law. What do you hear this one? In the act of making mud, Jesus was essentially kneading the mud like you would knead dough, and that broke <laughs> a rabbinical law. Some people who know a lot more about this than I do suggest that actually the third thing was that he um, instructed the blind man to walk too far to the pool of Siloam, that he walked outside of the restrictions that would have been on uh, the amount of travel he could do on the Sabbath. But what is really interesting here as I looked at this is that Jesus broke rabbinical laws rather than Sabbath laws. Rabbinical laws were actually just the human interpretation of the Sabbath laws which were then imposed on to everyone else and they completely squashed the flow of God's grace. 
They felt that Jesus trampled all over these laws and in doing so, they felt that he actually trampled all over their national identity and that was not a comfortable place for them to be. Except, and we know this, here was the answer that they were all waiting for. He was the real deal and they were completely blind to him. Ruth Haley Barton says the Pharisees were afraid to face their own inner darkness. They remained firmly entrenched in the outer darkness of their religious system. They neither recognized nor were ready to welcome the light of the world shining in their midst. They completely missed the heart of the law. When it's about do's and don'ts, grace becomes obsolete. There's no need for it. Instead, the purpose of grace is to draw us to the place that we don't want to go against the law because we're so familiar with the heart behind it being for us, being on our side, pursuing us, and longing for complete abandonment to him. The law then, when we get that, makes sense because it runs in parallel with the heart of the Father. How we view God always reflects how we see the law. But you see, Jesus had this whole new level of authority and an entirely new set of priorities, and they just didn't like either of them. They had already drawn up their own conclusions about Jesus, despite how many times they questioned the previously blind man. They realized that if they acknowledge Jesus for who he is, their lives and their identities are going to have to be completely overhauled. Instead, this miracle, which was meant to bring freedom, it actually increased their animosity towards Jesus. Their singular aim in this moment was to retract their hearts from engaging with the albeit slightly uncomfortable truth. And instead, they just set out to tear Jesus down. The painful thing for me is, and I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we can probably see echoes of this kind of thinking in our own attitudes at times. Perhaps it feels a little bit too uncomfortable seeing Jesus for who he is because when we do that, he exposes the sin in us that we all masquerade very well behind, if we're honest. Legalism doesn't produce love because it doesn't deal with the misaligned motivations of our hearts. Instead, it flows from and then feeds again in this cycle of self-righteousness and it just keeps going. I believe a question for some of us this morning is what beliefs and systems do we hold too tightly to that we miss what Jesus is doing in these days? And of course, after the Pharisees comes his family, we mustn't forget their response in all of this. It was very likely that these guys were poor because their son had to go and beg for provision. Unfortunately, their position, um, in their position, it was likely that they were living in fear very much of what other people thought. And they had likely caught wind of the angle that the Pharisees were coming at this from. The reality was that the Pharisees didn't really care about the truth in all of this. So offering it to them that their son had been healed would actually achieve nothing other than getting them socially excommunicated. And for them, this wasn't a risk that was worth taking. They were aware of the, of the consequences of declaring Jesus as the Messiah. 
And the Pharisees, as we know, had already decided that anyone who confessed Jesus as Lord was, was out. And so they completely evaded this question altogether. What a shame, isn't it, that they couldn't declare this miracle that had happened with their own fa- within their own family, but they were under so much fear that they couldn't do that. And again, I, I believe the Spirit is really prompting some of us to ask ourselves this really hard question. Are we like the family of the man? Are we living under the control and the fear of what other people are going to think when we identify the work of God in our lives? If that's somewhere that you feel you are at the moment, can I tell you that you're right where the enemy wants you to be? And perhaps it's time to get out of that place. Then, and I love this poetic bit of this chapter, we'll come back to Jesus at the end. It's good to always come back to Jesus, isn't it? Everyone in the circumstances saw the same miracle, but it wasn't identified as a move of God because of their own religious lenses. Whilst all the other people and groups, if you like, were going to their own theological corners, Jesus (laughs) ignored that, and he let his spirit-filled compassion move him towards the suffering. Jesus had heard about the man being thrown out of the temple, being excommunicated socially, and he identified the depth of spiritual reassurance that this guy was going to need now. So Jesus went to find him. Compassion was his priority. He scooped all of the other nonsense out of the way. He cleared the table of all of the stuff that would inhibit him in this moment, that would hinder the supernatural and prevent the full miracle from happening. Jesus wanted to completely transform the circumstances of the man's life, and he did. And he wants to offer us the same For some of us this morning, maybe we need it declared over our lives again that Jesus not only sees you, but he seeks you out like he did this blind man. He has started the good work in you and he is determined to see it through to completion. And so where the man was thoroughly rejected by the religious and those in the community, Jesus comes offering him acceptance. When Jesus finds him again, he completes the healing by connecting with the man. He was no longer blind. The most limited person in the whole narrative was the one who Jesus actually accomplished the most in. I love that. And it's true for us today that you might feel limited with everything that's going on at the moment, but when you're in God's presence, opening yourself up to him, he can do anything he wants with you. The hidden stuff of the heart is always Jesus's ultimate goal. So for us, as I bring this to a close, as followers of Jesus, whose spiritual eyes are hopefully opening at this time, we should be asking ourselves, where is God in this and how can we get on board with what he's doing? It's such a privilege as the church to be able to align ourselves with the work of the Spirit at this time, especially those works that happen outside of our religious comfort zones. And this account in John 9 serves to remind us that very often spiritual blindness can be even more of a challenge to heal than physical blindness. John 9 shows me (laughs) that I have some spiritual blind spots. 
And the difference for me and, and for you maybe as well this morning is that we choose whether we admit them or not, whether we own them and whether we do something about them. I love what Eric Johnson says about this. He says, you can tell you have a religious mindset when a miracle offends your perspective of Jesus. You can tell you have a political mindset when breakthrough offends who you think it should happen to. And I love how Jesus refers to himself at the end of chapter nine and verse 39. He says, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, making all the distinctions clear so that those who have never seen will see and those who have made a great pretense of seeing will actually be exposed as blind. But we know that they didn't need to stay blind and nor do we. And during this season, I sense that, that the Spirit is really desperately trying to open our eyes up to ourselves and to what then he is up to around us. And this morning, I believe that he wants us to see the creative plans and the opportunities for the Spirit to move correctly and display the kingdom in his way at this time. So let me pray for you today. God, we lay our hearts before you this morning. Open our eyes that we can see what it is that you're provoking in us and around us at this time. Would you show us the work of your hands, God, and the move of your spirit during this season? Would you ignite our imaginations with heavenly possibilities that push us beyond what we're already knowing and into the realms, God, where you need us most? In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you today.